It was my hero, Bugs Bunny, who once sang, Carrots are divine. So how can I not take seriously a Japanese racing syndicate called You Carrot Farm? They will send their simply divine three-year-old Epicaris to contest the Belmont Stakes, and we'll chat with his trainer, Kiyoshi Hagewara. Plus, we'll also have a full recap of the Preakness. Oh, carrots are divine. You get a dozen for a dime. It's magic. Rabbit every Monday, 1951. In the Gate is coming up next. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. Hey, nobody. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that pink podcatcher app that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Only two horses not based in the United States have ever won a Triple Crown race. Canyonero II from Venezuela took the 1971 Kentucky Derby. I don't remember that. That was not long after I was born. But then there was Go and Go from Ireland, who took the Belmont Stakes in 1990. I do remember that one. Go and Go was trained by Dermot Weld who just returned to New York this month to saddle the mare Zhukova, who beat males in the Man of War. Back then, Go and Go had run twice as a two-year-old here in the States, winning the Laurel Futurity, but ran twice in Ireland in the spring before shipping stateside. Epicaris will try to become the third international winner of a Triple Crown race, and the first one from the Far East, and he's entered in the third leg, the Belmont Stakes, on June 10th. He had already qualified for the Kentucky Derby in February through a new pathway that awards points for two races in Japan. Yes, in Japan. But then Epicarus went to Dubai and ran in the UAE Derby. It's Thunderstow alongside Epicharis. Thunderstow, the Guineas winner. Epicharis from Japan, 200 meters out. Thunderstow's running about. Epicharis battling back. Epicharis in front. Thunderstow trying. You remember Thunder Snow, don't you? As soon as the gates opened for the Kentucky Derby, Thunder Snow started bucking and effectively declared his race over. It's still unclear what was bugging him, since he ran the UAE Derby on a wet track, just like the Kentucky Derby, though not nearly as wet as Churchill Downs was that day. As for Epicarus, he'll get his American close-up shortly. And we are joined from Tokyo by his trainer, Kiyoshi Hagiwara, here on In The Gate. Mr. Hagiwara speaks only Japanese. So to help us out, we also have with us Munahito Sawada, who is an associate art director with ESPN The Magazine, and he will act as our interpreter. Mr. Hagiwara, thanks so much for being here. You took this horse back to Japan after running second in the United Arab Emirates Derby. He was eligible to run in the Kentucky Derby. Did you think about just shipping him straight to America from Dubai? 
Okay, he is saying that um, he doesn't want the horse to get the, the sense of race. And also, um, he doesn't want to put him in the Kentucky Derby because that is a really tough, tough race. So, considering that the condition of the horse, he avoided the Kentucky Derby. You have said that you think the Belmont Stakes would be a better spot for Epic Horace than the Derby would have been. And you alluded to that just now. What makes you say that? Um, he really cares about the flows, flows of the, the uh, race. And then, again, he said that he, he's going to repeat the same answer from the, the first question, but Kentucky is a really tough one, and then he prefers longer one, usually. And then this is 2,400 2, meters. And uh, 2000, so he chose 2400. Now, Epicarus won his first four starts in Japan. And to me, I looked at those races. He looked like the real deal in the two stakes wins that I saw. So when he finished runner-up to Thunder Snow in Dubai, I figured Thunder Snow, despite the tough number two post in the Kentucky Derby, had a chance to do well. What did you think when you saw Thunder Snow just inexplicably start bucking at the start of the Kentucky Derby, which basically ended his race. He's saying that the ground condition was terrible that day, so he, he wouldn't have used um, the, the horse. And it, it was raining, so it was really hard. Before he ran in the hyacinth stakes in February, I read that Epicarus was sweating pretty heavily before that race, which you don't like to see in a horse, but in the end, it didn't really matter. Kicking up is Epicarus along this leader at the moment in uh, Adorado. Adorado has it now from Epicarus, starting to run on his captain, King out wider. Holding it together on Adorado is Yutakatake, but moving up on the inside is Christoph Lemire on Epicarus. Epicarus and Adorado doing battle along the inside. Epicarus finds the lead, starts to stretch away from Adorado. Epicarus and Adorado, Epicarus and Adorado, hyping over late for third, but it's four for four for this very good son of Goldalua. Epicarus wins for the second favorite, Adorado. How do you think he'll handle a large, potentially boisterous crowd in a strange location at a weird time of day for him? Okay, he's saying that he can really adjust to the um, um, environment. He's going to do well. Trainer Kiyoshi Hagiwara is our guest here on In the Gate. He trains UAE Derby runner-up Epicarus, who'll be headed here from Japan to contest the Belmont Stakes. We're also grateful to have Munehito Sawada of ESPN the Magazine here to interpret for us. Epicarus is owned by a large syndicate of people known as Carrot Farm. What can you tell us about Carrot Farm? How long has it been around? How many people are in the syndicate? And what kind of people are they? Are they typically middle-class people? Are they captains of industry? Do they typically have top-stakes-level horses in Japan? What can you tell us about them? He's saying that Carrot Farm was established almost 14, 15 years ago, and uh, 10 to 15 people are members for this um, place. And the people who are uh, very um, just people, 
and uh, the, the prize ranking in, in Japan is actually number two, he said. And um, uh, they also, they just don't do top stakes level um, horses. They, they do um, a lot of different races. Remember, a full Preakness recap is on the way. And speaking of the Preakness... Epicharis is a grandson of the 1989 U.S. Horse of the Year, the great Sunday Silence. He won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Breeders' Cup Classic. But American breeders were not that interested in him. He didn't have a great bloodline, so he went off to Japan for stallion duty. What kind of impact has Sunday Silence had on the Japanese thoroughbred industry? Uh, Sunday Silence is the greatest horse ever, and he said he changed the, the world of horse racing in Japan. Certainly so. Now, last year, the Japanese horse Lani ran all three legs of the Triple Crown, finishing third in the Belmont. How much did Lani's success factor into your team's decision to try the Belmont? He say um, uh, Lani did very well, and then um, he he has to admit that he that motivates him, and uh, he um, Lani influenced this the the success of Lani influenced him a lot. Now maybe that is one influence, but not coincidentally, the New York Racing Association is now offering a one million dollar bonus to a Japanese-based horse who wins the Belmont. Did that make a difference in deciding to skip Kentucky? He said that's pretty cool incident, and then, of course, he keeps that right money always in his mind, but that's not the priority. He cares about the condition of the race, not just condition of the, the place, but it's just condition of the horse, condition of the schedule, and all the elements. That's the kind of factor for him to decide if he's going or not. Finally, what would it mean to you to win the Belmont? He's saying that in the American classic races, he's saying that the Japanese male horse never won in the history. So he really wanted to, um, he wants to make it happen this time. And also, if he's saying if Paris wins, the value of the horse is going to go up. So he's expecting that as well. Kiyoshi Hagiwara, trainer of Epicaris, thank you so much for a few minutes and the best of luck in the Belmont. <laughs> We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, a review of the Preakness, so don't go anywhere. Classic Empire's giving them a run for the money in Baltimore, and Classic Empire has wrested the lead away now from Always Dreaming with a quarter to go at Pimlico, and Julia Leperu and Classic Empire have a three-length lead, but Cloud Computing on the outside is coming with a run, Cloud Computing outside keeps on coming, Classic Empire, Cloud Computing, head-to-head down to the line, Cloud Computing wins the Preakness! Well, we won't have a triple crown this year as Cloud Computing overtakes Classic Empire at a well-beaten derby winner in Always Dreaming. 
And so on we go back into obscurity with horse racing for the next year. Oh, did I say that? I'm sorry. Well, let us <laughs> let us review the Preakness with our good friend Bill Finley. It's been a while since we've had Bill back on the show. And, well, can you definitively say, Bill, that Always Dreaming was simply the beneficiary of a gorgeous trip in the Kentucky Derby? Or do you think he was worn out by Classic Empire in this race, and that's why he didn't win? Well, uh, let's let's look at option C. I think that we didn't see the same always dreaming in the Preakness that we saw in the Kentucky Derby because he couldn't handle the two weeks in between races, which I thought coming in, so this is not redboarding, was a huge factor because Todd Pletcher, his trainer, a great trainer, is notorious for spacing the races out for his horses. Uh, usually he likes to give five or six weeks in between races. And of the 45 prior horses that he had run in the Kentucky Derby prior to this year, he had only brought three back in the Preakness, including one of which, of course, is Super Saver, which he had to bring back because he's a Kentucky Derby winner. So that shows you how uncomfortable he is with the two weeks. Now, when you talk about the pace today, yes, that certainly was a factor. You have two horses battling it out in Classic Empire and Always Dreaming, even though they weren't going particularly fast when horses battle like that, it does take a toll on them, but it didn't hurt Classic Empire nearly as much as it hurt Always Dreaming. Classic Empire was still fighting and, and really still had the lead maybe 50 yards from the wire, whereas Always Dreaming, he just completely spit the bit and ran a very disappointing race. Well, I will play devil's advocate just a little bit here in that it seems like Derby entrance and in particular derby winners usually hold their form in the preakness and i even go back to mind that bird 50 to 1 winner in 2009 who finished a very close second to rachel alexandra i mean he didn't win in very much before that didn't win anything after that but still held his form in the preakness so to me that the two weeks of rest i think is a little bit overblown that's just me but Clearly, Always Dreaming was pressed hard through pretty solid fractions, and I just don't think he had it at all after that. I think it was the pace that got him. Well, I'm going to go back to my point, and uh, we're going to uh, agree to, to disagree here. The other horses you mentioned, sure, many of them, you know, of course, American Pharaoh, uh, the most famous example, ran great coming out of the Kentucky Derby into the Preakness. But you have to look at the individual trainer. Todd Pletcher is a great trainer, but this is not something he's good at. Matter of fact, you could make an argument that this is the major weakness in his arsenal. And I don't think it's any coincidence that his other Kentucky Derby winner, Super Saber, did the exact same thing in the Preakness. They both ran eighth. So his two derby winners not only don't perform well in the Preakness, don't hit the board, both of them ran very poorly. And again, I yes, the pace was a factor. If, if Classic Empire was able to hold in there as well as he did, and what did he get beat? Half a length of neck. Always Dreaming got beat 14 lengths. So I... I'm taking a lot of my theories based on the fact 
that why did the pace not hurt Classic Empire all that much? I think with a different trip, Classic Empire would have won this race, but the pace didn't cause a meltdown with him like it did with Always Dreaming. What do you think this does to Todd Pletcher's legacy based on what you just said? Was he lucky to win the Derby, or is he really the great trainer who finally validated his career with a second Derby win? Yeah, n- nobody's going to care that he lost the Preakness. I mean, it's it's not going to be a black mark on his uh, record at all because you don't go from being on top of the world to people saying you're a bum two weeks later. First of all, Todd Pletcher doesn't need, need anybody to uh, question his – it's ridiculous to question his credentials. It's ridiculous to question what kind of trainer he is. He's among the best trainers in the history of horse racing. But the the one major knock on him was that unsightly one for 45 record in the Kentucky Derby. Now it's still two for 48. That doesn't sound so good either, but that's a lot better than one for 45. Todd Pletcher wouldn't trade a Preakness win for a Kentucky Derby win or 10 Preakness wins for one Kentucky Derby win, especially under the circumstances that he was faced with this year. This will not even be a minor blemish on his reputation or his career. I think people understand that it's very difficult in some instances with some horses, with some stables, to bring a horse back in two weeks. Todd couldn't pull it off. Now, you know, maybe someday he will because I think he's going to win a lot more Kentucky Derbies. But, you know, uh, as long as the Preakness is two weeks removed from the Kentucky Derby, it's always going to be a challenge for Pletcher. It's just not something he's good at. Bill Finley of the Thoroughbred Daily News. We miss him on this show. It's good to have him back here on In the Gate. Now, American Pharaoh could have won races that were run on Mars, Jupiter, or anywhere else in the universe. So he's not really a good example. But when you see the Derby winner always dreaming finish that far back, does the momentum start to build for changing the spacing of the Triple Crown races from a two-week and a three-week gap to a four-week gap, let's say? No, because of American Pharaoh. I mean, there was a lot of talk about doing that. First of all, I don't think it was ever going to happen because the tradition was too strong. And I just think people, uh, and I'm not, by the way, I, I was always very much against that. The, the, the tradition was just too strong. People were talking a lot about it, but American Pharaoh put that to rest. I, I mean, if this streak had gone on, so the streak went on for 37 years without a triple crown winner. If it went on for 57 years, people might say, look, you know, this has just become literally impossible. It is time to change it. But it, a horse came around and proved that it can be done. And it is supposed to be difficult. I don't mind that it took 37 years because the mere fact that it took 37 years reminds you how difficult it is and also gives you an indication of the greatness of American Pharaoh. If you make it too easy, then the Triple Crown winners are, I wouldn't say just another horse, but they're not as special. This is the, you know, the, the pantheon of greatness in this sport, and it's a very select club. If there have been, if there are forty triple crown winners, it's no big deal. That there are just the the handful that there are, 
is one of the things that makes it so unbelievably special. Interestingly, though, of the 12 Triple Crown winners, only the first Sir Barton and the last American Pharaoh are the only ones in their respective decades. The other 10 happened in bunches, three in the 30s, four in the 40s, and three more legendary ones, of course, in the 70s. We're going to have to wait to see if there's another one in this decade. But for now, Bill Finley, thank you so much for a few minutes. Don't be a stranger on this show. Call me anytime, Barry. Our thanks to Bill Finley and Kiyoshi Hagiwara. On the day the American racing world celebrated the Preakness, the raucous party and glittering equine stars, I spent the afternoon watching a far different type of horse race, so removed from the Preakness it could have been on Mars. The races were held in the back lot of a casino in North Florida, on a dusty strip, just nags performing jogs. The horses were slow, of different breeds, covered barely a football field, from a gate that looked like it was made of Lincoln Logs. These performances, they're not called races, occurred to satisfy a rule in Florida for those who own a track that to expand to casino gaming, they must also offer live racing. But what constitutes a race? That term has slack. The rule was put in place to save the racing industry as well as breeding, but a mockery it's become. These performances are farcical. How could they pass for races? To quote my teenage son, it's really dumb. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that pink podcatcher app that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.